There's 400 billionaires that will get a bigger tax cut than most of these social programs combined. That's where the money is going to. They're taking it from all of us to give it to their billionaire friends who come and have steak with Donald Trump in this monstrosity of a hotel behind me. Our, our sons and our daughters go to war, lose their lives, and those who don't lose their lives lose their minds, and those who don't lose their minds lose their limbs, and then they come home to be homeless. We must stand up and fight back. Currently, we have 70 West Papuan political prisoners detained because of their political belief that they're voting for the self-determination. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and in D.C. this week, the resistance rolls on. This is not the resistance to just Trump. Progressives say the whole damn system of corporate capitalism, government corruption, and neoliberalism is guilty as hell. We'll hear from tenants in public housing. On-the-ground contributor Lydia Curtis attended her first anti-Klan rally. Gerald Horn will weigh in on the ratcheting up of tensions in Syria and Venezuela, and we'll hear from West Papuan human rights activist Herman Wangai. So as always, we have a lot packed into our hour, starting with our headlines. This week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did not have the votes for passage of Trump Care and announced that vote on the bill was canceled until after the July 4th recess. In the meantime, protesters descended on the offices of Republican senators here in D.C. and across the country. And the social justice group Work for Peace, that's W.E.R.K., staged a march and street rally in northeast D.C. in front of McConnell's home. Singing, dancing, and chanting, they reminded McConnell of the human cost of Trump care. The Congressional Budget Office said this week that the Senate version of Trump Care will take away health coverage from additional 22 million Americans. Now, with health care taking center stage, actually taking away some time from coverage of Trump and Russia, the simultaneous assaults on so many areas of American life are getting short shrift. In the era of public housing, for example, Donald Trump proposes in his 2018 budget a 22% rent increase for 9 million very low-income people receiving assistance from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. This week, On the Ground attended a rally by tenants sponsored by several organizations outside the Trump International Hotel in Northwest D.C. Michael Kane, Executive Director of the National Alliance of HUD Tenants, said that members of Congress need to hear about critical issues facing residents of public housing, which include the elderly and disabled. People are going to tell their stories to Congress as to why this is a terrible thing. Because we got to be careful. The bigger issues are so dramatic 
the you know cuts to Obamacare, Medicaid are so dramatic that this could easily fall beneath the radar. The rent increases to nine million people can fall be below the radar if we're not careful. We hear more voices from the housing rally later in the show. Now there were several developments in D.C. This week related to the environment and the Environmental Protection Agency, Lee Fong at The Intercept reported that Dennis Lee Forsgren, a former lobbyist, recently attacked to lead water safety policy, has deep ties to a fossil fuel advocacy group engaged in the promotion of the Dakota Access Pipeline, as well as controversial offshore drilling efforts. That report was published as Trump made an executive order to dismantle a rule, the Waters of the United States rule, signed by President Obama, to protect smaller bodies of water like streams and wetlands. Scientists say that these bodies of water ultimately impact drinking water for one-third of all Americans. At last week's rally to support the legal effort to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Reverend Lennox Yearwood told those gathered to continue to fight for clean energy and water. Yeah. This summer will be the summer of resistance. Yeah. This summer will be the summer when we stop every damn pipeline that you want to build. This summer we will stop you from, from not from transitioning from fossil fuels, but to moving to clean energy. We will stop you from pushing poverty and pollution to a new generation as for the people. This summer of resistance, we stand, we rise, and we fight. All power, and I mean all power, to the people, power to the people. The fight for an environment that is not polluted is also connected to the availability of quality public transportation that keeps people out of cars and not burning gasoline. Like many public transportation systems around the country, D.C.'s metro system is in crisis with issues of safety, reliability, and increasing costs. After a recent fare increase was implemented, a broad coalition rallied on Thursday for no fare hikes and no decreased service. Chantel James has more. An energetic crowd of over 100 circled the Columbia Heights metro station on Thursday. They gathered around a larger-than-life puppet made to look like Paul Wettefield, Metro's general manager and chief executive officer, who has been responsible for raising fares while cutting services in his short tenure with the city's public transportation system, which is actually a for-profit, privately-owned entity. Washingtonians with disabilities and others who depend on the Metro system to make their lives possible gave testimony at the megaphone. Organizers for the rally included members of One DC and the collective known as Save Our System. They came with clear demands of those who control Metro, brighter and worker safety, a flat rate, and more established funding sources for public participation. As the crowd came together, organizer Siggy outlined demands and asked folks to draw on their own experiences as DC citizens who rely on public transit. Big business and developers should be paying their fair share for all the money they make off of being close to metro stations. Next, we want a safe and reliable system. WMATA needs to put worker and rider safety be a real priority. We want them to be transparent about their decision making and tell us 
what's really going on. And finally, we want a fair system, and that means we want to take a note from Chicago, New York, Boston, all the other major transit agencies in the country, and have a flat fare because the system is too expensive. We cannot afford to ride as it is, and raising fares only makes it harder for us to get to work and school and to the doctor and to the grocery store and everywhere else we want to go and feel like going using the buses and trains. So we want a fair system. We want a flat fare, free transit, and expanded service, and we want our metro access service to be brought back under WMATA because all public transit should be public because pu public transit is a public good. And our public transit system is under attack. And when our public transit system is under attack, what do we do? When our public transit system is under attack, what do we do? Thank you. To learn more about how you can make your voice heard in the struggle for fair transit, visit SaveMetro.org. From Columbia Heights, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And finally in our headlines, issues of race and hate. Hundreds of Americans, tourists to the nation's capital and the iconic Lincoln Memorial were greeted by dueling rallies on Sunday as a group of far-right demonstrators, including neo-Nazis, staged what they call a freedom of speech rally. And another coalition, D.C. United Against Hate, held a counter-demonstration. Journalist Dave Zirin, an organizer of the counter-demonstration, said he was motivated in part to counter the rally by neo-fascists when a black college student, Richard Collins III, was stabbed to death last month at the University of Maryland by Sean Urbanski, a white student who was a member of a now-deleted Facebook group called Alt-Reich Nation, which published white supremacist content. Others were at the rally to honor the memory of Nabra Hassanin, a Muslim teenager bludgeoned to death this month in Virginia. They are about silencing people with knives and blood. So I say free speech, you point at them and say lie. Free speech! Lie! Free speech! Lie! Free speech! Lie! They're not for free speech, they're scared of Julius Caesar. They're scared of Shakespeare. They don't want any speech except the speech that allows them to organize people to kill. While these dueling rallies were held at the Lincoln Memorial, one of the region's largest anti-fascist coalitions was actually holding another rally in March outside the offices of the Metropolitan Police Department, drawing attention to the lawsuit brought against the MPD for arrest during the inauguration of Donald Trump. Lydia Curtis will offer her reflections on the actions at the Lincoln Memorial later in the show. A little late breaking news, former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner has been elected the new president of the progressive organization Our Revolution. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, issues beyond the U.S. borders. A human rights activist from West Papua makes a case here in D.C. for the survival of his people. And we catch up with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Stay with us.
people of West Papua have been suffering under Indonesian occupation since 1963. According to the West Papua campaign, more than 500,000 civilians have been killed and thousands more have been raped, tortured, and imprisoned. Foreign media and human rights groups are banned from operating in West Papua, so people rarely hear about the situation there. Herman Wangai, who was speaking tonight at the Omoja House on Bunker Hill in Northeast D.C., recently spoke to On the Ground on Capitol Hill at a meeting sponsored by Representative Gwen Moore of Wisconsin. What would you hope to achieve by talking to the Congress of the United States or the Congressional Black Caucus? We would like to see the change in West Papua and one of the the most important, we would like to see that I'm hoping uh, Congresswoman uh, more and others uh, Congressmen and women from the Black Caucus to yeah, represent our brothers and sisters in West Papua, like Brother mentioned about yeah, we are our ascent also come from Africa. This is something that we would like to build an alliance with the African Union. And brothers and sisters here in, in America. So I'm hoping on what's happening today. I want to see that our brother and sister from American Political in Congress they are supporting us as well for the right that we've been dreaming for for a long time. That's freedom, right? For self-determination. That United Nations, international com- community believe and. The U.S. is one of the greatest uh, failures that I learned. We have a lot of freedom here. Mm-hmm. Something that I want to see that one day in West Papua, freedom happened because of the support that we also have from the U.S. Congress. And we look at that situation now in West Papua. When we organize peaceful protests, Papuan friends, brothers and sisters, the arrested by the Indonesian uh, authority. So uh, currently we have 70 West Papuan political prisoners detained because of their political belief that they're voting for the self-determination. Spend time in jail even though just raise the flag, our flag. When we, when we raise our West Papuan flag in West Papua, it's a jail for 15 years and 20 years. That's also because of the Indonesian government regulation that created to limit the Papuan uh, people to not to express themselves in their own country. So, yeah, I, I'm hoping that uh, from today's meeting, I want to see that U.S. Congress yeah, can consider our request. Does West Papua have right to self-determination? Um, I have a question. Have you determined this to be genocide by the United Nations uh, standards? Yeah, one of the, now the, the format the United Nations, the head now, consider about the genocide. That's, I studied it and I'm now currently writing the genocide. Uh, one of my article mm-hmm. will be published because that's according to the format that UN uh, requests. Because when I argue, uh, when West Papua people, we argue about genocide with the UN genocide prevention, they refrain for the, for the format. Do they fulfill the standard or not? 
but I I say that's that's in 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 the reality in West Papua. This genocide happened. Papua people um, got killed. That's a, it's not just only happening for one year. This is for almost happening for 50 years. Uh, so you imagine that's in in 1963, West Papua population this was 800,000 people. Uh, right now, after 54 years, only less than 3 million. That's why I'm hoping that, yeah, when I, after I finish my, my research and the, my article about the genocide, yeah, I want to present it in the... And lastly, the next nation next door to you is Papua New Guinea, which is probably about 6 or 7 million people right. by yeah. now, yeah. Uh, and they're an independent nation since yeah. 1975. Right. What are their, what's their position uh, on the struggle for West Papuan independence? Yeah, the, from the government position, also one of the Indonesian allies, so they are on the Indonesian side. Uh, however, from the West pa Papua New Guinean community, Papua New Guinea and yeah, friends and brothers, they are supporting Papua from the grassroots level. They are supporting the Papua. So they, now they try to organizing uh, the couple of members of parliament to yeah, challenge the, the current government to change the mind for the position. I think last, last month, according to the, the one of the newspaper in the Papua New Guinea, in the Pacific, uh, the current government, Papua New Guinea, a prime minister, mentioned about the, the position of West Papua. So they recognize human rights and abuses is happening in, in West Papua. Mm -hmm. But for the right for separate determination, they're still thinking about it. So they're still thinking about the for West Papua should be set, yeah, merdeka or freedom or not. They're still thinking about it. But they're recognizing um, human rights violations is happening in West Papua from the Papua New Guinea government. Yeah. Thank you, Michael Byfield, for that report. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, and I'm Esther Averman. I caught up with Gerald Horn in town, in D.C. this week, doing some research. I caught up with him here in Northwest D.C. How you doing, Gerald? Fine, and yourself? I'm great. So I want to continue our discussion we had last week about international affairs. And there are so many things happening this week. The United States threatened to strike Syria again, uh, claiming that they have intelligence that Syria is planning uh, an alleged chemical attack. And also, Israel struck Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's talk about that. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that what's happening is that the so-called Islamic State is being squeezed all over Syria. It's being squeezed in particular by the coalition led by Russia, the Damascus-based regime, the Iranian forces, and Hezbollah of Lebanon. At the same time, the U.S.-backed forces also are putting on an offensive in Syria. And so the skies above Syria are becoming ever more crowded. But more than that, Israel is now becoming concerned that President al-Assad will survive. Not only will he survive, he will want, from their point of view, to retaliate for all of the nonsense that Israel has helped to create in Syria because of his intervention. Not only that, but Hezbollah 
has toughened its military forces in Syria. Supposedly, it has thousands of missiles already that can reach any part of Israeli real estate. And both the United States and Israel are quite concerned about that. And then there's the question of Turkey. Turkey is very upset that the United States is allied with Kurdish-based forces in Syria to move against supposedly the Islamic State. And that has caused Turkey to become ever more alienated from Washington. In fact, there is even a story floating around now that Turkey may be edging away from NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization led by the United States, and edging toward the so-called Shanghai Cooperation Organization led by Moscow and Beijing, which would be an earthquake-like maneuver if it happens. And even the fact that we're discussing it leads to timblors and tremors. So this is helping to cause this uproar all around Syria. Well, kind of tie that into these threats by the United States to actually strike Syria. And also, Iraq claimed victory over ISIS today, claiming that it had routed uh, ISIS out of Mosul and, and basically destroyed it. Yes, I saw that story, and I've yet to see it confirmed, but certainly it's worthy of note. The Iraqis, of course, are concerned that the Kurds in the north of the country or considering an autonomy, if not a secessionist move, this in turn, once again, is causing an uproar in Turkey because whenever Kurds anywhere, be they Syria, Iraq, or perhaps even Iran, get the idea of organizing, Tur Turkey becomes concerned since 20% of its population is Kurdish and a central aspect of the modern Turkish state has been suppressing Kurdish nationality. So all of these developments are just causing more tension. But one of the things I find striking most recently about Syria is that the prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch has a story out now that says that the April 2017 cruise missile attack on Syria by the United States was basically founded on faulty intelligence, to put it euphemistically. But what I find even more curious about this her story is that he could not find a U.S. outlet for this story. He had to publish it in Germany. And I think that that's a sign of the times right now. I know that, understandably, uh, you focus on the misdeeds of the corporate-backed media. And I think that this is a central misdeed, that this prize-winning journalist, perhaps the most important independent journalist in the last half century in the United States, could not find an outlet for his story, and he had to go overseas. It reminds me of the jazz musicians I'm doing research mm -hmm. on, who had to go overseas to pursue their art, because they couldn't find outlets here in the United States for their art. Wow. Well, not even in the so-called progressive media. Well, isn't that striking? <laughs> <laughs> well, how about updating our conversation last week about the Horn of Africa? Uh, we talked about slave markets cropping up in Libya and the ongoing, really, human catastrophe in Yemen with the famine. And that's also touching other countries there. Um, is there any update that you've, that you've read about this week? Well, the only update that I would point to is, number one, <laughs> that supposedly the Saudi-based regime, which has caused this cholera outbreak in Yemen because of its relentless bombing, now has donated $67 million to resolve the problem that it helped to cause. But also, with regard to Saudi Arabia, I think we talked about last week the fact 
that um, the 31-year-old crown prince, what well, the 30. One year old deputy crown prince got elevated to crown prince and his cousin got demoted. The New York Times has a story today that suggests that not only was the cousin demoted, but he's in a, under a kind of house arrest. And that may signal a, a sort of instability, hopefully, in the Saudi based regime, which is under pressure in any case because of its pressure on Qatar and its demand that this Persian Gulf monarchy shut down Al Jazeera, among other demands. Uh, that is not necessarily getting traction. However, they basically, like college students of yore, said that their demands were non-negotiable. <laughs> that Qatar had to either capitulate or else. And their deadline is rapidly approaching. So we'll know within the next week whether or not they were bluffing or not. So I guess on this side of the ocean, really dramatic things happening in Venezuela. The grenades dropped onto the Supreme Court there. It reminds me so much of the attempted coup against Hugo Chavez when he was still alive. What are your thoughts about Venezuela? Well, I'm not sure what to think because I keep reading these contrasting, conflicting press reports. One press report suggested that the young man who engineered this maneuver in Caracas the other day is some sort of action movie hero and that in some ways he was acting out the plot of one of his movies he released this video of him standing before these mass figures it turns out according to one press report I, made, I read that at least two of the mass figures were actually cardboard cutouts and weren't really mass soldiers like they appeared to be so I'm not really sure what to think about this, but certainly, understandably, the Caracas-based regime is rather skittish right now, given the threats emanating from the Organization of American States and emanating from the State Department. So they're taking it very seriously, which I think is advisable. And then finally, you know, we often talk about any other little-known news that's escaping corporate media or much of the media. Well, interestingly enough, the... G20 meeting is going to take place, the Group of 20 meeting, the leading economies on planet Earth, which not only includes South Africa, but also Nigeria and Turkey, and of course the G7 led by the United States. They're meeting in Hamburg. And I recall when the World Trade Organization met in Seattle in 1999, which led to the Battle of Seattle, uh, some commentators said they might as well could have met in Berkeley if they wanted to in ignite a protest. And that's the way I look at Hamburg. I mean, people who follow the black liberation movement closely know that in the 1930s, Hamburg in many ways was one of the central nodes of pan-African resistance. That's because the Communist International based in Moscow had designated Hamburg as the place from which directives and newsletters and propaganda would then be disseminated through sailors because Hamburg is a major port. And the United States and Britain and many other countries oftentimes relied upon African and Asian sailors and seafarers. And so William Patterson, who I wrote a book about, who was the leader of the Scottsboro Nine case of the 1930s, which was... The, yes, exactly. Which was a major step in the retreat of U.S. apartheid. These are the nine black youth in Alabama accused falsely of sexual molestation. There was a global movement against their execution that basically emanated from Humber. Germany. And, and William Patterson was in and out of Hamburg on a re regular basis. So 
I'm going to be very interested to see uh, what the brothers and sisters in Hamburg have in store for the G20 meeting. So you're saying that it's remained the site of resistance? Absolutely it is. Okay. Absolutely it is. And uh, I'm sure people are organizing right now as we speak, especially, especially against uh, Donald J. Trump. Wow. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, professor, historian, author, activist. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you.
You've been listening to A Child is Born by pianist Jerry Allen, who joined the ancestors this week at the age of 60. Earlier in the show, we heard pieces of her compositions, Dark Prince and The Gathering. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averam. And the multifaceted attack on working and poor people also includes an attack on what remains of public housing in this country. In his 2018 budget, Donald Trump proposes a 22% rent increase for 9 million very low-income people receiving assistance from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. This week, On the Ground attended a rally by tenants sponsored by several organizations outside the Trump International Hotel in Northwest D.C. The first speaker is Megan Hustings, Executive Director for the National Coalition for the Homeless. Thanks, everyone, for being here. So uh, we saw cuts to HUD like we're seeing today. We saw it during the Reagan administration. Another reality star president that we had also wanted to cut our housing resources. And what happened in the 80s? We saw rampant homelessness, and it's gone unchecked for almost 40 years. These cuts that the president is proposing to HUD will cause more homelessness. This, this is not okay. We need more money for housing. We need more money for homeless services. We need more money for health care. HUD needs more money, more funding. No cuts. No cuts. No cuts. No cuts. No cuts. And you know why no cuts? Because housing is a human right. What do we want? Housing. When do we want it? Now. When do we want? Housing. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Housing. When do we want it? When do we want housing? What do we want it? Yesterday. Thank you. Thank you. So it's great that it's great people are here at the National Alliance of Hut Tenants from all over the country. We're here in support and solidarity with the people in Washington who are fighting to save their homes, just like the members of our organization are fighting to save ours. Trump has proposed to raise rents for four and a half million families, nine million very low income, extremely low income people. That's part of his budget request. He would raise them people today in government subsidized housing. These are very low income, mostly elderly, disabled, large low income families that live on very little income and they pay 30 percent used to be 15 under nixon nixon was 15 and 25 percent reagan raised it to 30 trump wants to raise it to 35 but there's a little a little vicious twist to it right now people pay 30 percent of their adjusted income they get deductions if they're disabled if they're elderly if they have families and children they get a deduction so it's not the gross income Trump's proposal raises it to 35% of gross, no deductions. If you've got medical bills, no deductions. If you've got children, no deductions. If you're elderly and disabled, you'd have no deductions under that proposal. That means a 22%, about $80 a month rent increase for every single extremely low-income family living in government-subsidized housing. And that's going to affect the people, the other larger population of low-income people that doesn't have subsidized housing. If the rents in subsidized housing go up, it's a rent increase for everybody else. So this is a, an assault, a completely needless, vicious assault 
on low-income people, on the poorest of the poor. And the custody, if you look at the rest of the budget, Medicaid, food stamps, Meals on Wheels for the seniors, public broadcasting, the Environmental Protection Agency, the State Department peace programs overseas, so they're going after poor people globally, not just here. Health programs, health care, they're cutting, they're abolishing health care for 23 to 24 million people who just got it. They're going to be cut off. Medicaid is going to be destroyed under this Trump budget. And don't, Trump says, oh, I'm not cutting Medicare and Social Security. His, his Shabbos Goy Ryan is going to do exactly that dirty work. That's exactly what he's going to propose. Today or tomorrow, he's going to file his budget, which will force a cut to Social Security and Medicare. And then wait till the, the bill that eventually comes out of Congress will be somewhere in between. So Trump can say, oh, I, I honored my word to my constituents that I wouldn't cut Social Security and, and Medicare. But Ryan will do that, and he'll end up signing that bill. So watch out. Now, we're here, we're here to go and tell people on Capitol Hill, and, you know, it, we're angry that our brothers and sisters in Washington don't have the privilege that we do to go up and talk to our elected representatives and tell them to say no. Just say no to Trump's rent increase. Just say no to cuts to HUD. Just say no to the war against the poor. We're going to take that message up to Capitol Hill today. We're going to, and we're going to come from around the country where people have, you know, scratched pennies together. We don't have a budget for this. People have to raise money to get here. Low-income people raise money in their communities to get here to take this message up there. We're going to get up there and tell our stories. People are going to tell their stories to Congress as to why this is a terrible thing. Because we got to be careful. The bigger issues are so dramatic. The you know cuts to Obamacare, Medicaid are so dramatic that this could easily fall beneath the radar. The rent increases to nine million people can fall be below the radar if we're not careful. And what is it for? What are they doing this? Why are they cutting every single, literally every single program that benefits poor and working class people in this country? Every single one is scheduled for either ending, abolishing it, terminating it, or cutting it like by half or two-thirds. And this is just the first year. We know that Mulvaney, the budget director, he wants to cut all of HUD over 10 years. That's their proposal. This is the first year of the 10-year cut. So what are they doing this for? It's to give a huge tax cut to the richest one-tenth of one percent. Not one percent, one-tenth of one percent. There's 400 billionaires that will get a bigger tax cut than most of these social programs combined. That's where the money is going to. They're taking it from all of us to give it to their billionaire friends who come and have steak with Donald Trump in this monstrosity of a hotel behind me. This hideous monstrosity for the super-rich it's not for us. It's not for the American people. It's not for anybody who cares about this country. These are people, they don't, most of them are not even here from this country. They're here to represent their foreign interests that are buying influence in the White House. Bribes. Bribes to the President of the United States. Who made his money, let's not forget, the Trump family made their money 
from subsidized housing in New York. They made their money in the 40s and 50s building housing for the military and later subsidized housing for families. They currently own part of Starrett City, the largest Section 8 development. Donald Trump himself is a limited partner in Starrett City, 20,000 Section 8 apartments in Brooklyn. His son-in-law owns thousands of Section 8 apartments. So they already, that's how they got their money, people. They got their money from the, on the backs of the poor by getting tax breaks and subsidies that we pay for that, that got them very rich. They got tax breaks to build this thing. They got tax breaks to build Trump Tower. Tax breaks are subsidies. We say no tax cuts, no tax breaks for Donald Trump, no subsidies for Donald Trump and his crime family that are polluting this country. So that's what we're here to do. We're here to deliver a cease and desist order. Cease and desist order. Cease and desist order to Donald Trump. Cease and desist. Cease and desist. Cease and desist. Ladies and gentlemen, we've come out here to tell our president, our president select. He was not elected, he was selected. Now, the deal is this country fights against poverty. And if this country fights against poverty, then there shouldn't be a such thing called minimum wage. There should be a thing called living wage. We must preserve our country. Donald Trump is selling our country to our enemies. He's negotiating our lives. Our, our sons and our daughters go to war, lose their lives. And those who don't lose their lives, lose their minds. And those who don't lose their minds, lose their limbs. And then they come home to be homeless. We must stand up and fight back for this oppression. Donald Trump has taken us back a hundred years with this entrapment on poverty, trapping people into homelessness, into poverty, hunger. It's crazy to live in a country as rich as us where we have people starving, children starving, closing our schools. This is ridiculous. Donald Trump, you got to go. I can't say it enough. You're destroying the people who protect you, our veterans, from all over. You're attacking poor people who make you rich. As a matter of fact, them billions of dollars you got, just give the country one. How about this? How about make your son-in-law pay his fair share of taxes? Get out of the public housing business. Get out of housing business that you got rich off of. You're supposed to provide housing. You're the president of this country. You're supposed to fight for the poorest people, the lowest people in the country. You're supposed to make it a equality, not oppression. So as I close, I want all of you to join with me and say, stand up, fight back. Take back the land. I just wanted to say one thing before I pass the mic. You know, they give steak dinners to people that we consider the enemies of our country in this hotel that I'm standing in front of. 
And in California, the lowest of the low, people that make under $1,000 a month are, were entitled to $125 a month for food stamps. And this month, we've been notified that we no longer qualify for that that we are lucky if we can get $16 a month. You try feeding yourself on $16 a month, much less trade your family. Thank you. My name is Kenneth Clark and I represent the National Social Workers Association and I am pleasured to be out here with you guys. I want to start with a quote though. FDR said, the success, the greatness of a country is by how well you take care of the vulnerable, those who are sick, disabled, those who are oppressed. Number 45, no, because he's not going to be called president. He does not, he is nothing presidential material. I want to say this though, it cannot just end right here y'all. I come from a county, Prince George's County, Maryland. We have a poverty rate of 13.85% and out of that percentage is our families with children. We have people that's living behind Tent City and Bowie Town Center. We have people in Waldorf, Maryland who are staying up under bridges and listen, 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 listen. We have got to hold Ryan, we have got to hold all of them accountable for what they are doing. It needs to become inconveniencing to them to know what they are doing to the people. It is time for us to stop. It's time for us to stop just looking at his little celebrity. He's a celebrity, no politician. We have a check system. He doesn't even know how the, the branches of the government operate. We can no longer stand for the bigotry. Oh, just in case, this is a message for you, Donald Trump. You were so concerned about President Barack Obama calling radical Islam. Well, my name is Kenneth J. Clark. Look me up. And I'm here to tell you, I want you, Donald J. Trump, to expose the bigotry, the racism that is coming from your administration. Did you hear that? Donald J. Trump, I want you to expose the bigotry that is coming from Paul Ryan, that is coming from Jeff Sessions, that is coming from you. It is time, y'all, we're standing out here. I am tired of seeing the seniors, the veterans, the disabled be taken advantage of. Donald Trump, you've got to go. You've got to go. You've got to go. Move it louder. Donald Trump has got to go. Donald Trump has got to go. Donald Trump has got to go. When I say dump, you say Trump. Dump. 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 Dump.
You have been listening to voices at a rally in support of tenants in public housing who would be faced with a 22% increase in rent if Donald Trump gets his way in his 2018 proposed budget. The rally was sponsored by several organizations, including the National Association of HUD Tenants and Empower DC, outside the Trump International Hotel in Northwest DC. When we come back, a veteran activist confronts hate. Stay with us. On Sunday, June 25th, I went to my first anti-Klan rally. The so-called alt-right, including their poster boy, Richard Spencer, gathered at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial to exercise their First Amendment rights, calling it a freedom of speech rally. Progressive activists organized a counter-demonstration under the banner, DC United Against Hate. Although I am very active in my community, I generally do not attend counter-demonstrations. The confrontational nature of them do not fit my temperament, but in light of the back-to-back acquittals of police officers who fatally shot black men, in light of the stabbing of Richard Collins at the University of Maryland, and the bludgeoning death of Nabra Hassanen in Virginia, I had to take a stand. I had to do something to address my anger, fear, disgust, and disbelief. So, instead of going to my usual church service, I went to the Lincoln Memorial. Regardless of what the event was called, in my mind, it was an anti-Klan rally. And, as I traveled to the National Mall with butterflies in my stomach, my mind was filled with thoughts and images of angry white folks with symbols of hate. I was concerned about my personal safety, but I went because I needed to resist. The progressive community advertised that it would be a legal, safe, and peaceful rally and that we would create a safe space. I kept telling myself that there would be barricades and that there was safety in numbers. But soon after I parked my car, there they were. I found myself walking onto the memorial grounds behind a group of white men carrying Confederate flags and a green-black flag that I did not recognize. I was alone, so I slowed down. I thought maybe I should get a picture of them, which was a good excuse to stop and fiddle with my phone, but my fingers would not cooperate. This small group walked right through the progressive gathering and went to the top of the stairs to join other flag wavers in front of where Lincoln sits. I joined the DC United Against Hate group and the journalist Dave Zyron who was one of the organizers, offered me a sign. I carefully picked through the signs to select a simple message, DC United Against Hate, that was progressive and galvanizing. Anger was mounting among us gathered because it was clear that the park police, backed up by the DC police, were not doing their jobs. The park police allowed the hate group to wave their flags that represent slavery and treason and racism for about 20 minutes, having photo opportunities at the top of the memorial, even though their permit was for the reflecting pool at the bottom. 
When the alt-right group came down the steps, the park police surrounded them and allowed them to stop right in front of our gathering, in the middle of our gathering, which was a permitted space, about 20 steps up from the reflecting pool, in which was supposed to be a safe space. There were hundreds of tourists milling about. We faced them and the alt-right and held up our signs. Finally, after about five minutes, D.C. police in helmets and body armor came over to them and told them to leave our space. Lead organizer Michael Shalal gave a speech about how hate speech isn't free speech and how it often leads to violent acts. He talked about the uptick in hate crimes and I thought about the two young people whose deaths propelled me here. I participated in the meditation facilitated by Io Handy Kendi but after about five minutes or so, I became uneasy. So I opened my eyes. The alt-right had set up their speakers and someone shouted, the South will rise again. I looked in the direction of where I was parked and I saw another larger wave of skinhead types in paramilitary gear and flags walking over from about three blocks away. There were no barricades, no rally marshals, no police. Dave Zyron noticed them as well and sprang into action, rounding up other organizers to make sure the approaching skinheads made a sharp right instead of coming up where we were. As they paraded by, they gave us and the tourists the finger. This event was a turning point for me. I took pictures with folks from India, talked about peace, met up with other activists, and got up close and personal with hate. My initial trepidation is now anger. Anger at how the police could treat the alt-right so well by letting them get away with violating their permit, but handcuff and publicly humiliate the young black boys who were selling water on the mall a few days earlier. As a taxpayer and a peaceful citizen, I deserve to be protected. Those kids on the mall, providing a needed product, deserve respect and an apology. I left the counter demonstration early, but I heard that it remained peaceful. Although I usually attend proactive rallies and marches, I learned that sometimes we must face off and counter hate. This is Lydia Curtis. And Lydia Curtis will have the last word today. And that will do it for today's show. Thanks again to our guests, Gerald Horn, and thanks to Chantel James, Michelle Roberts, Lydia Curtis, and Michael Byfield. A special shout-out to our regular listeners in Southern Colorado, Northern New Mexico, Seattle, Washington, Fairbanks, Alaska, and on Workforce Rising Radio. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Radio Show. I'm Mr. Averam. Keep raising your voice. Peace. Oh, <laughs> oh,